Good to be with you. And I want to get right to business today, don't you? Let's get to God's word, but let me open it with prayer. Our Father, uh, our, our great God, our loving Lord, and Jesus, we're here this morning to hear from you. You have some things to speak to us about, and it's our pleasure to open your inerrant, infallible word and to learn from it. We ask the Spirit would teach us this morning. Uh, Father, I'm just the messenger, um, but you are the teacher, and we welcome you here this morning and ask that it might touch our hearts, give us understanding, and then, Lord, bring us closer to yourself, I pray, in faithfulness and devotion. For we would ask these things because it was all made possible through the sacrifice of your loving Son, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for that. In your holy name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we have the, uh, the privilege of looking at a passage of Scripture that comes from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you would turn there with me, please, to chapter 22. Um, this is an interesting time in the um, life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It actually is... Um, it takes place right after the triumphal entry, and this is probably, well, not probably, this is the last week where he ministers in the city of Jerusalem, and it's probably one or two days um, after the triumphal entry, and it's a time where he was teaching, uh, teaching in parables, and he was um, confronting um, sin and godlessness and people whose hearts have, have, have drawn themselves away from faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. And he was changing over the money tables, if you remember that story. And, and he created such a stir in, in the city that the Pharisees confronted him. They want to know, by whose authority are you doing these things? And we, we, don't, we don't experience these things here. We have our ways of doing things, Jesus, and you're turning everything upside down. Why are you doing these things? And so we have a series of these kinds of confrontations that are coming before the Lord. And it's our pleasure this morning to look at one of them because, as you know from your study on Scripture and the life and the times and ministry of Jesus, that he has a way of answering things that would never even occur, not, not to them, but even to us, yes, if you knew what I'm talking about. Let's take a look at one of those passages this morning, but let me introduce by kind of drawing us together with um, a statement that I think would hold true. Uh, someone once said that the greatest tragedy in life would be to get to the end of it and then to realize that it was spent on things that didn't matter. Think about that. The greatest tragedy in life is to get to the end of it and then realize that it was spent on things that didn't matter. That's convicting. Why? Because it says that the worst thing that could ever happen to you and me would be to get to the end of our life and realize with, with, with all of its years of relationships and experiences and finances and economics and personal challenges and achievements and failures and lessons, it was spent on things that would make no lasting difference to anyone, anywhere. No one wants to live that kind of life. 
But in order to avoid that, we have to truthfully answer one very important question, and I'll, I'll put it out in a couple of different ways for clarity. The question is this, what then gives my life meaning? Why am I here? Why do I even exist? And you know, over the years, I've asked so many people that question. And sad to say, many people have responded by saying, you know, I've never really thought about it. And so they much less had a ready answer. In 1647, the famous Westminster Confession gave us the answer to that question. The very first question of the catechism that's called the teaching inside of the confession, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the only answer that's provided there is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, worship is, is how you avoid a wasted life in, in this world. Glorify God now, and you will enjoy the relationship that you have with your Creator forever. This is a powerful, powerful thought. And it's backed by Scripture. David said in Psalm 86, All the nations whom thou hast made will come and worship before thee. All the nations will someday do that, and they shall glorify thy name. For thou art great and doest wondrous deeds. Thou alone art God. Amen? Amen. Paul said in Romans 11, 86, For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It was the Apostle Paul who said also in the first Corinthians, to the first Corinthians church, whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The Apostle John said in Revelation 4.11, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and they were created. Our reason for being, and the very reason that we exist, is to worship God. And speaking through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said, the people that I formed for myself will declare my glory. So I ask, well, how, how do we actually do that in life? Well, first we recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews said, God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers, or to the fathers and in, in the prophets, and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in whom? His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world, and He is the radiance of His glory, and He is the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and friends, He is there today. So first we recognize the identity of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and very God Himself. 
Second, we believe in the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. In Titus 3.5, Paul said, He saved us not on the basis of any deed that we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And that mercy was expressed to us at the cross of His suffering, and it was for our eternal benefit. Do you believe that this morning? And so the, the, chief, the chief purpose of every life is to glorify God through faith in Christ so that we can enjoy our Creator forever. That is the call to everyone from the gospel. That is the good news from God to man in order to live a meaningful life. And it begins, and now I'm beginning to focus on our scripture probably wondering, are we ever going to get there? Yeah. <laughs> but it begins with worshiping the right God. The right God. See, this truth is foundational to our understanding of the lesson this morning from Matthew 22, because it is there that the Lord Jesus makes clear that there are two gods available for you to worship, but only one of them will give you the meaning of life to yourself. Just one. Follow with me. I'm in verse 15 of chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together. This is a confrontation. How they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore... What do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice, and he said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled and leaving him, they went away. This is obviously a trap and it's set for Jesus by the Jewish leaders in an attempt to get rid of him. But Jesus turned it into a, an important spiritual lesson for us. There are three parts to understanding how he did that here. First is uh, the times in which the event took place. Second is the nature of the test that is given to him. And third is the teaching that comes from it. And so we have the time, the test, and the teaching. Let's see how that unfolds. First, the times, verse 15 and 16. See, when this event took place in Jerusalem, Rome was the kingdom in power in Palestine. As the ruling authority, the Roman Caesar required a head tax from every Jewish citizen in the form of a Roman coin known as a denarius. It wasn't a lot of money. But the tax infuriated the Jewish people. Why? Because Israel was God's people, God's nation, and the Jews were God's people. And to pay any tax to a foreign ruler to live in their own land and tax them for it was tantamount to blasphemy. Not only that, 
the denarius had the imprint of Caesar on it and an inscription under it that was proclaiming he was the son of God. Requiring everybody under his rule to pay that head tax with that denarius was his way of compelling people to acknowledge his divinity. The Jews, of course, didn't believe that. And no patriotic Israelite wanted to use this coin by choice. So it was a constant point of friction between the Romans and the Jews. There are two groups of people mentioned here. In verse 15, we have the Pharisees, who are a sect of hypocritical Jewish religious leaders who rejected and who despised the Lord Jesus. And there were the Herodians in verse 16. They were a puppet government set up by the Romans to collect taxes, which is an issue here, but also to keep civil order. They played the middle ground between the Romans and the people by allowing the Pharisees to continue their religious practices in the temple. Here, conspiring together, the Pharisees and the Herodians agreed to a plan to eliminate Jesus permanently. And that's the background, that's the times of this event. But then came the test. Attempting to discredit the Lord Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians came up with what they thought was a foolproof way of getting rid of him. They would force Jesus to take a position on the taxation issue. Why is that important? Well, the first thing they would do, let me just preface this, is they would prepare the ground, so to speak. They would flatter him. And so they said to him, if you'll notice in verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and that you teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Hmm. All of that was true in reality, but they certainly didn't believe it. They only said that to get his cooperation. And then they dropped the question. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? What a setup. If Jesus said that the tax was not legal, then the Herodians who were present would actually arrest him and put him on trial for sedition against the Roman government. If Jesus said that the tax was legal, he would be by the Jewish multitudes and considered a fraudulent teacher. Now, the reason that that's an issue here is because back in the last verse of the previous chapter, we, we learned that the Pharisees were listening to his teaching before this event, and they didn't like it, but they had to be careful. They tried to seize him because they feared the multitudes. Why they fear the multitudes, the people? Because the people had already held Jesus as a prophet. And so they were very careful, um, but they wanted to set him up. So they said, well, the tax is legal, and thereby the people would turn against him. Well, what a setup. The test appears to be airtight. But knowing their intentions, why? Because Jesus knew the hearts of every man. He responded with a simple but oh-so-profound teaching. So we have the times, we have the test, now we have the teaching. The first thing that Jesus did was to reveal the wickedness and the duplicity of their hearts. Look what he said in verse 18. 
But Jesus perceived their malice, and he said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Then he said, Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then, in verse 20, he had them confirm what was on the coin. He asked, Whose, now careful here, whose likeness and whose inscription is this? They correctly answered, It's Caesar's. But it wasn't just the image of Caesar that they acknowledged. It was also the words under the image that proclaimed Caesar to be the Son of God. Now that first answer, well, whose likeness is this? That's an interesting word, likeness, and that's very that's key to our really under, real understanding of this passage. The word in the Greek is icon. Whose likeness is on the coin? Whose icon is on the coin? Well, most of us interact, interact with this word every day and not even realize it, it's an icon. It means image or picture. In other words, Jesus is saying, whose picture is on this coin? But it has a deeper meaning than that. See, we have icons all over our computer screens, yes? All the little pictures of the folders and the clipboards and the paintbrushes, those are all icons, but they are pictures of functions. You click on the picture, you get a function behind the picture that opens up. And so the picture of Caesar on the coin represented his function described underneath the, inscription, the picture that he was the god of the earthly empire that they knew. So then Jesus said to them simply and with very deep implications, then render, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. There are two phrases in Jesus' answer. In the first, the word render is interesting. He could have said, well, just give to Caesar. Just give it to Caesar. But that word render is different. It's not give. Give is didomy, but the word that he used was apodity. And it comes from the root word of to give, but it has a slightly different meaning because Jesus added the prefix apa to didomy. So it's apodite. It means to give back. Uh, we're going to begin to see the significance of that here. See, it involves the idea of obligation or responsibility. Jesus' answer to the previous question that the Pharisees gave to him in verse 17 was, therefore, yes, it is entirely lawful and right to pay the poll tax to Caesar. You're giving it back. Why? Because the tax is Caesar's tax, and it belongs to the things in his domain. Because Caesar was the physical protector and provider of Israel against invasion from other nations and gave them civil government, including Roman rule of law, it was his, Jesus is saying, it is his right to apply that poll tax on the people. The Apostle Paul repeated this whole idea in Romans 13 when he said, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. I'm going to pause here for just a little bit because you can see a smile began to form on the faces of the Pharisees. Ah, we got him. He said the poll tax is legal, and the people are now going to turn against him. Uh-uh. There's an exception here. One thing, Jesus wasn't finished with his answer, was he? In the second phrase, his answer was, and to God the things that are God's. 
Meaning, back to that word icon, you have an obligation and responsibility to give back to God what originally belongs to him. What are those things? Well, how about everything? Did we not read in Scripture, all things? All things, everything belongs to God. Absolutely everything. So, and in this particular situation, Jesus brings that right down into their situation because Jesus is really talking about the hearts of his people. God wants the sincere worship of those he formed to declare his glory. He wants our lives to be an expression of our commitment to honor him in first place by an unceasing remembrance of his greatness and his goodness, his desire for us to submit to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ and to live a life of spiritual service for his glory. Those are the things Jesus wanted them to give back to God. And that's still true today. Jesus played off the image of Caesar on the coin and compared it to the image of God, which is imprinted on you and me. We were originally designed to be his image in the world, not Caesar or any other person or any other thing. In Genesis 1.26, did not God say, let us, man, let us make man in our what? Image, icon. And he did. But that image was corrupted at the fall. Paul said in Romans 1.22, men became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Call it Caesar, call it Pharisee, call it Herodian, scribes, lawyers, whatever. At the fall, men exchanged God's. And that changed everything. Our God made us in his image, but that image was corrupted in the rebellion as man exchanged the image of our creator for the image of a man on a coin. Jesus is saying in our passage here, give yourselves back to God. Give Caesar whatever he wants, but give back to God what he wants and what is really precious and of great eternal value, he wants our heart of unadulterated worship to him. See, the Bible is quite clear about how we do this. First, we understand that the right image or icon of the Son of God is not Caesar on a coin or any man. It is Jesus Christ. Paul said in Colossians 1.15, He is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.3, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. See, Satan has blinded people and made their image worthless and unusable and Satan did that so that they, we, might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is, Paul's words, the image of God. So we proclaim him, Paul said, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man complete in Christ. 
Second, when we give ourselves back to God through faith in his perfect image, the Lord Jesus Christ, when we do that, then we find something very special that happens. He restores. Listen, this is, this, this is important to you and I personally. Uh, it's a gift from God, a personal gift from him. When we honor that, he restores us in his glorious image once again. Paul said in Romans eight twenty nine, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the, what? Image of his Son. And whom he predestined, these he also called, and those that he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, these he glorified. That's you and me. What is in your future and my future? Glory. A glorified future. Friends, this is true salvation. This is the imprimatur of God that is restored into us the moment that we received Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world. As Paul said in Colossians 3.9, you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image, the icon of the one who created him. This word icon, image, keeps coming up over and over in Scripture because we are taught there that when we come to Christ, we receive this image of Christ imprinted upon ourselves. We become... His righteousness. He who knew new sin died for sin so that we might know the righteousness that he imputes to us. And so Jesus is saying to the world here in this brief event, give the things of man's kingdom back to him, whatever you want. Don't waste your life chasing after things that don't matter. Remember, the greatest tragedy in life is to get to the end of it and then realize that it was spent on things that didn't matter. What matters is our worship. What matters is the imprint of the righteousness of God. The, this, this idea of the very image of Christ put upon ourselves so that we might become that person who would ultimately experience glory in the presence of the Lord himself. Someday, sometime. Somewhere? Yes, heaven. How about, how's that? <laughs> so give God the things that are his. Put his, put his image on you, and you'll find your real meaning in this life. And it's because it folds into another life, eternal life. Life in this world is fickle and temporary, we know that. But the image of God that he is offering to us through faith in Christ is glorious. It is everlasting, and it is guaranteed by his awesome omnipotence, his all-powerful purposes. And so that makes us his, the special objects of his image. Here's a question for you. Is there something going on in your life that you need to give back to the world? I think it's a good question. I mean, do you think not that the preacher had to face this question when he read this passage himself? We all have things in our life that need to be given back to the world. And it's an interesting time to do that. And now is your opportunity. And the second question that comes from this is, do you, do you need to give yourself back to God? I remember that song, uh, I can't remember what it is, the title of it right now, but 
Lord, my heart can grow so far away and cold, and yet your love for me is still the same. Some of us need to put off the things of the world and give, some, give that back to the world. Others of us need to restore the, the image that God imprinted on us and give ourselves back to God. Some of us need to give ourselves to God for the very first time. But for most of us, and I, I think I recognize most of you, I've been here a few times <laughs> over the past eight years. And so I know, because we're not any different, you and me. And I know that there are times when I need to give things back to God, back to the world. And there are times when I need to give myself and renew myself and give myself back to God. So that when we do that, we can actually become the, and have restored to us the image of the things that he meant for you and I to be. And again, this is the opportunity for that. So, as I close this morning in, in prayer, we're going to take a pause as I close. The worship team can come up and we can take a pause and we can, we can all assess and then we can decide what things we're going to give back to the world and then what things we need to give back to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to bring before you this uh, precious opportunity that we have to do what we just spoke of. We appreciate the opportunity that we have to do this because you are such a great God. And you forgive us, Lord, when we bring to you those things. John made it very clear that uh, when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to restore to us. Oh, he didn't say the image, but that's the point of our message this morning. So restore to us, God, that thing. Give us pure hearts. It's so easy for us to take on the soil that comes from the world and its influence in us. But we most fervently desire to have pure hearts. So as we take a moment and pause to assess uh, in the quietness and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are offered this opportunity.